Welcome to the Thinking to Believe podcast, a place where thinking is believing. My name is Jason Dooley, and I am the host of Thinking to Believe. In our last episode, I looked at some biblical objections to the apologetic endeavor, and then we looked at the value, the practical value of apologetics for non-believers, and we explored the fact that the apologetics can help to remove intellectual barriers that an individual might have to becoming a Christian. Um, we talked about as society as a whole, it can benefit the society by keeping Christianity as one of the intellectually plausible spiritual options that are available to people so that when they are hungry for God, when they are seeking after God, Christianity is one of those religions that you know will be contemplated uh, by the thinking man and woman um, as they're considering which religion to choose. And we also said that apologetics can even help the people that don't come to faith to at least remove all of their their intellectual reasons that they cite for not coming to faith so that you know the real reason for their rejection of Christianity can be made evident to them, namely the problem is with their will. And we said that, of course, the Holy Spirit is involved in this whole process. Um, it's a false dichotomy to say that the it's either the apologetics or it's the Spirit. Indeed, it can be both. Now, this fourth and final uh, episode on the case for apologetics, we're going to look at the practical value of apologetics for believers and then we'll finish with uh, looking at some objections that are raised against the apologetic enterprise and how we might respond to those objections. So what does apologetics do for believers? Well, number one, it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our faith. Um, believers, just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean that we don't have any doubts that might hinder our spiritual growth. There can be doubts that genuine Christians experience. They may continue to believe in Jesus, but there's still doubts that are nagging at their soul and that they want to you know, resolve those doubts. Apologetics can help them to resolve those doubts and thereby strengthen their faith. I mean, think about it. Christians struggle with you know, even believing in God. Like Sometimes they might believe in God and other days they're not so, so sure whether God exists. They struggle with the problem of evil. Maybe, you know, struggle with believing in the actual resurrection of Jesus. So others will struggle with trusting the Bible as the true word of God, or maybe sexual ethics, um, struggle with the problem of other religions, and, you know, what to think about the fact that, you know, Hindus on the Christian worldview, Hindus would not be saved. So there's a problem of religious pluralism, the problem of relativism. Maybe it's the problem of hell that somebody struggles with, of how could a good, loving God be just in sending somebody to hell for eternity? So evidence uh, is a vital component of faith. So the more that we have evidence for Christianity, the stronger our faith will be. I think the author of Hebrews made it clear that there is a connection between evidence and faith when he said that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and that this assurance comes from the evidence of things unseen. This is Hebrews chapter 11. 
So faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, but this assurance itself comes from the evidence of things that are not seen. So immature faith is going to be this trust based on the evidence. We're trusting in things that we have reason to believe are true. So as we grow in our knowledge of the evidence, we can also grow in our faith and it'll strengthen our faith. Greg Kokel wrote, quote, the objective reasons are important to show that our subjective confidence has not been misplaced, that what we've believed with our hearts can be confirmed with our minds. I like that. It's to show us that the subjective confidence that we have in Christ has not been misplaced. Um, so the apologetics can increase the believer's confidence that what we have believed in our heart is also defensible in the real world. That is to say, it is intellectually credible and it is rationally justified. And I can tell you personally how much apologetics has increased my faith and increased my confidence. Even though, you know, I could look back when I first got converted and say, oh yeah, I had a very strong faith. The study of apologetics has increased my faith even more. And to be honest, as valuable as I think apologetics are to unbelievers and how important it is in our evangelistic efforts, I think the best reason to study apologetics is for one's personal faith, because it will strengthen your faith and strengthen your confidence. Which leads me to the second value of apologetics for Christians. Number, It gives us the confidence to evangelize. I think all Christians are interested in learning how to share our faith more effectively with unbelievers. Um, I think all Christians would like to know the answers to difficult questions that unbelievers level against the Christian faith. I think all Christians are interested in you know, preparing themselves for world missions in whatever capacity that they are able to contribute to that. I think all of us would like to develop a fearless faith. So we need to study apologetics because that's what apologetics does. It prepares us to evangelize and it gives us confidence to evangelize. Think about tests that you would take in school. Which tests did you fear? You feared the ones you didn't study for. You, st- you feared the tests that you weren't prepared for. But if you spent eight hours studying for a test and knew every answer uh, to every possible question like the back of your hand, you would walk into that class with confidence and take that test with confidence. We fear the tests we haven't studied for. When we're not prepared, then we're scared. If we want to have fearless evangelism, if we want to be bold and have, be confident in when we evangelize, then we need to know the answers to the basic questions that the world is asking. We need to be ready to give a defense for the Christian faith. We need to be ready to uh, give the, the responses to objections that people have and answers to questions that they raise. And if we're ready for those, because we've anticipated them in advance, we've studied them in advance, then we will have more confidence to evangelize. So apologetics strengthens our faith. It gives us the confidence to evangelize. Number three, it helps us to avoid subjectivity. If you don't have reason and evidence in your life, 
then you're often relying just on your own experience and on your feelings. And that makes the whole Christian religion very subjective to you. How do you decide that what you have believed is true? How do you know that? Especially when there's all these other competing religious ideas. I mean, many Christians have struggled with, well, you know, I think I'm right, but the Buddhist thinks he's right. And he's just as confident that he's right as I am about me being right. And so how do I know maybe he's not the one who's actually right and I'm wrong? You know, how, how do you arbitrate between competing truth claims? Well, you do so by looking at the reasons that support the truth claims. So when we know what the reasons are that Christianity is true and reasons against the truth of Buddhism, for example, we will have more confidence in the truth of Christianity and we will avoid the subjectivity of our personal feelings. All right, number four. The value of apologetics for Christians is that it allows us to duplicate our faith in others. Someone can have a lot of personal confidence that Christianity is true. And indeed, I, I believe firmly that one does not need apologetics in order to have a solid faith. One can have a solid faith based on the witness of the Spirit, based on their encounter with Jesus Christ, um, and, and be solid without ever studying apologetics. I think apologetics are simply a nice addition to what the work of the Spirit has already done in our lives. So through our own experience, we can know that our Christianity is true. But here's the question. How do you duplicate that faith that you have based on your experience in the life of somebody else who doesn't share your experience yet? How do you duplicate your faith if they don't share the experience that prompts your faith? I like William Lane Craig's distinction that he makes. He says there's a difference between knowing Christianity is true and showing it to be true. There's a difference in how we personally know Christianity is true and how we demonstrate that truth to other people. Apologetics is about how we demonstrate to others that our Christianity is true. We can't share with them our experience. I mean, we can tell them what the experience was, but people are often skeptical of other people's experience. You know, if the smoke isn't coming out of your chimney, you question whether or not it's really smoke and whether there's really a fire. So many people are skeptical of your experience, but when you start giving them evidence and start giving them reasons, you can convince them that Christianity is true. Now, that doesn't make them a Christian. They still have to act on that knowledge, but reason and evidence play a primary role in showing Christianity to be true. So these arguments that we make, of course, they're not the basis for belief, but they do serve as confirmation for the individual. It helps them to know that, um, that Christianity is true and allows them to take that step of faith. So faith does not need reasons in the sense that one can uh, get faith without ever having studied apologetics, but uh, those reasons sure are nice. So let me just say that way. They sure are nice. They help the individual as well as they help us to duplicate our faith in others. So the quick review, the four reasons that apologetics are important to believers is number one, it strengthens our faith. Number two, it gives us the confidence and boldness we need to evangelize. It avoids religious subjectivity in our lives, and it allows us to duplicate 
our faith in others. And for those four reasons, I think apologetics is extremely valuable to Christians, and all Christians should be engaged in the study of apologetics. If you benefit from this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Rate it, give me a five-star rating, and please write a brief review. This will help increase my rankings and make my podcast more visible to others. And finally, share. Share the link of your favorite episode on your social media. All right, let's round out this episode and series by looking at objections that people make to apologetics. And here I'm just going to entertain some of the common objections that I've heard. There could be others as well. Um, but let's just deal with maybe uh, I think about five objections that I will look at here in this section. Objection number one, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. I hear this all the time. My response, of course you can. <laughs> of course you can argue somebody into the kingdom. In the best sense of the word argue, we're not using argue in the sense of being argumentative, but arguing in the sense of uh, stating a position and then giving reasons for someone to believe that that position is true. There are all sorts of people who can testify to the fact that they became Christians only after and directly because they looked at the evidence for Christianity. I mean, there's people like Lee Strobel, who was vehemently opposed to Christianity until he began to look at the evidence, and he underwent a lengthy investigation. And because of what he learned, because of the information that he gathered, he ended up becoming a Christian. J. Warner Wallace, same thing, became a Christian because of the evidence. Um... There are many people, a long list of people that could be given that have come to faith largely because of the evidence that Christianity was true. Now, that doesn't mean that evidence alone was at play, that somehow the spirit was not involved. We've already addressed this previously. This is a false dichotomy to say it's either the spirit at work in their heart or it's the evidence and reason, but it can't be both. No, the spirit uses the evidence in order to change the person's mind about the truth of Christianity, but then the Spirit is also working on their heart to soften them up, to uh, allow them to place their, their trust and submit their will to Christ. So it is simply not true that you can't argue someone into the kingdom. It happens all the time. You may not know personally of somebody who has been one to God that way, but it does indeed happen. Our second objection People don't give a rip about our arguments. They only care about our love for them. So much could be said in response to this. I hear this all the time. It's sort of this whole friendship evangelism thing. You have to you know, just love on people and, and show them the love of Christ. Great. Show them the love of Christ. I, I, I don't dispute that. But the idea that people don't care about our arguments, all they care about is the way we treat them, is simply not true. Um, you know, a similar statement that goes along with this is, you know, people don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, that may be true in some circumstances, but if I need heart surgery, I don't care how much a doctor cares about me personally. I care about how much he knows. I care about his skill as a surgeon and his ability to do the job. So, 
yeah, knowing that someone cares for us, that's great, but we also need to know what they know. People do give a rip about arguments. People are interested in apologetics. They're interested in exploring the reasons to believe. People care about both um, our arguments and they care about our love. And in fact, I've often asked people, it's like, well, if, if you claim people don't give a rip about our arguments and that arguments don't persuade anybody, then my question to you is this, why are arguments so effective at turning people away from God? Why have so many people deconverted based on books like Richard Dawkins and some of these new atheists, where they've read these books and they walk away believing that God does not exist because they think the evidence supports that conclusion? Obviously, they care about arguments. They care about reason. So if reason is something they care enough to bring them uh, away from faith, then surely they also would care about arguments that would bring them to faith. Now, obviously, humans are persuaded by reasons. We change our mind on all sorts of things that we feel we're rationally compelled to do so. So why would it be any different when it comes to the Christian truth? The fact of the matter is people do care about reason. They care about evidence. I mean, look at some of these debates that take place on the existence of God or other religious questions. And a lot of these debates are packed full of people that are interested in these issues. And not just Christians, not just believers, but even unbelievers who want to explore the intellectual foundations for faith. Objection number three, God doesn't need us to be his lawyer. God doesn't need us to be his lawyer. This objection is, you know, characterizes the apologist as a lawyer who thinks he has to defend God. Okay, well, what if I responded by saying God doesn't need a promoter either? What if I characterized evangelism as promotion? Say, well, God doesn't need us to go around promoting him. Okay, so we're not going to preach the gospel anymore. If God wants people to know about him, he can tell them himself. Well, you would see how silly that is. Obviously, God has chosen us to proclaim him. Does God need us to do so? No, but that's what he's chosen to do. Likewise, God has chosen for those who proclaim him to also be prepared to defend him. Paul said what? That he was set for both the proclamation and the defense of the gospel, the confirmation and the defense of the gospel. So Paul didn't believe that, you know, he was doing something wrong by defending God's truth. He saw that that was his purpose as a minister was to defend the gospel and confirm the gospel through good reasons. That's why Peter tells us that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. So God may not need a lawyer, he may not need a promoter, but God has asked us to do both. He's invited us to do both. All right, objection number four, apologetics don't work. Very few people come to faith because of apologetics. Now, there is an element of truth in this. I would agree that even though apologetics have brought people to faith, if you were just to count noses and say, well, how many has it brought to faith? You know, my, I'm just, let's just say it's only 1% of all Christians. Okay, but that doesn't mean apologetics don't work. And indeed, I mean, if you're going to look at uh, 
the response that people have to some apologetic argument and say, well, I gave them the argument and they didn't become a Christian, therefore apologetics don't work. Well, have you ever preached the gospel to somebody and they haven't become a Christian as a result? Of course you have. The majority of people we preach the gospel to do not become Christians. But does anybody walk away from that and say, oh, well, obviously the gospel doesn't work or preaching doesn't work? No, that's not our conclusion. Um, it doesn't mean that the gospel's ineffective or we should abandon the Great Commission just because everybody we preach to doesn't become a Christian. Likewise, just because we give somebody an apologetic argument um, and they don't end up converting doesn't mean that apologetics don't work or that the apologetics uh, venture is not a worthwhile venture. The problem isn't the gospel. The problem isn't the apologetic. Rather, the problem is the hearts of men. The same hearts that can reject the gospel can also reject good reason. Now, there could be an, a bad apologetic, and I've heard some arguments people have made for God's existence where you're like, wow, that's a really bad argument. But let's just you know take that aside and think of the solid um, arguments that can be made for the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus, etc. Can somebody reject those arguments? Of course they can, in the same way that they can reject the gospel, but it doesn't make uh, the gospel any less true, and it doesn't make the apologetic any less true. We don't abandon the gospel or apologetics just because of the obstinacy of the human will. All right, the, what is this, the uh, fifth objection. I guess we're going to have six. I'm going to deal with two more. The fifth objection is that apologetic arguments must not be very good because they rarely persuade someone. So this is sort of a, a continuation of the prior objection. Now, it's not that our arguments are not persuasive, but rather that the audience refuses to be persuaded. It's not that the arguments are not persuasive, but that the audience refuses to be persuaded. Because remember, as Paul talked about here, there are people who are actively suppressing the truth. Well, if they're in a state of rebelling against God and suppressing the truth, well, what do you think is going to happen when you present an apologetic argument to them? If they're already engaged in a process of self-deception and fighting against what they know to be true in order to continue doing what they want to do, well, they're going to do the same thing to your apologetic. Now, obviously, with the interaction of the Holy Spirit, we're hoping that their heart is softened and they you know, come to see uh, their rebellion for what it is, and that they become convinced uh, again of the truth of God. But if they're actively engaged in that process of intellectual suppression, then it's not surprising that they may not be persuaded by your argument, not because the argument's bad, but because they don't want to be persuaded. They don't want to become a Christian. If their will is set against God, then they're inclined towards irrationality if irrationality is necessary in order to keep suppressing the truth. When you think about it, I mean, the, the existence of God and the truth of Christianity, this isn't some dispassionate topic. It's not like you know, you're talking about whether, whether or not you know, the color of cheese is yellow or, or orange or, you know, the color of grass or two plus two. These, 
Those are things that don't really matter to somebody. They don't really have any existential import in our lives. We're talking about things that have amazing impact on our lives. If they come to believe and and acknowledge that Christianity is true, that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is their savior and their Lord, they will literally have to reorient their entire life. It changes everything. So there's a lot riding on whether or not they will admit that Christianity is true. I think there are three reasons that people will reject the truth or they'll reject Christianity. One is intellectual reasons, and I think that's where apologetics is most effective for people that their primary reason for rejecting Christianity is intellectual. But then there's also emotional reasons people will reject it. And there's volitional reasons, the will. And all three of these areas of their life, the intellect, the emotions, and the, the volition or their, their will, all three of those need to be aligned for someone to convert. W.H. Griffith Thomas put it this way. He says, faith commences with the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence. That's the intellectual. He says it continues in the confidence of the heart or emotions based on conviction. That's the emotional element. And it is crowned in the consent of the will by means of which the conviction and confidence are expressed in conduct. I love it. All three intellect, emotion, and the will, all three are involved in conversion, and all any of those three can prevent somebody from being converted. So we have to understand, you know, the reasons why people don't become a Christian. It's not always just the intellect. So sometimes presenting the apologetic may not be enough. If somebody's primary reasons for rejecting God have to do with the the, the will, then no matter how persuasive you are, and no matter how good the evidence is, they're not going to convert because the problem is with their will. Or if, if the problem that they have is more emotional, maybe it's a hurt, you know, they prayed for their sister to be healed of some disease when they were a child and she wasn't and she died and they have a bitterness toward God and they don't understand why God would allow that. And so they stop believing in God because of that emotional wound. You know, then that's the issue that needs to be addressed. You can give them all the reasons you want for the existence of God, but that emotional aspect is still blocking them. So belief requires the assent of the will, the mind, and the emotions all together. So why does our apologetic not work? Why does it rarely persuade somebody? Maybe because the intellect is rarely the only reason that they're not a Christian. William Lane Craig has written, he says, no one in the final analysis really fails to become a Christian because of lack of arguments. He fails to become a Christian because he loves darkness rather than light and wants nothing to do with God. So here he's focusing on the will, the volitional aspect of human beings versus the intellectual part of human beings. And he's saying that, you know, it's often not just the intellect, it's the the desire for someone to, you know, be the, the Lord of their own life 
They are the master of their domain, if you will. They want to do things their way. They don't want to do things God's way. And so they are apt to reject our apologetic arguments. And often it's it's a rejection with hand-waving, you know, or just ridicule. Like, it's not very often you see solid um, responses to these uh, these objections. When I've looked at how, or I'm sorry, these arguments we make, when I look at the way a lot of atheists have responded to Christian apologetics, I'm amazed at how weak their objections are. It's almost like throwing spaghetti at a wall where you just throw whatever you can and see what sticks. Because ultimately, I think the real issue for many of these people is their will, and they don't want Christianity to be true. And last but not least, the final objection, why spend so much time learning apologetics if so few people actually come to faith via apologetic arguments? Now, this is a valid objection and a valid question. I mean, I have been studying apologetics for years, and I've spent thousands of hours in study. Now, granted, I think I've given it a lot more attention than most Christians need to because I am a teacher and that's my function in the church. Um, but it is a laborsome, tiresome practice. So why spend so much time learning it when it's the minority of people that seem to need it to come to faith and not the majority? Well, I think the value of apologetics goes way beyond evangelism, as we've argued earlier. I think it benefits the believers. So the primary reason to study apologetics is because of all the personal value that it has to the Christian himself. But just uh, even apart from the personal value that it has, this type of thinking that says, well, it only benefits a minority of people, so why spend so much time preparing in, in apologetics? What if we applied that thinking to medicine? What if we said, why study heart uh, medicine? Because so few people need to have heart surgeries. That's true. Very few people do need a heart surgery, but those who do need heart surgery, it's very important to them that somebody knows the heart well enough that they can perform surgery on them and save their life. Well, the same thing with apologetics. It's true that not everybody needs apologetics to come to faith, but those who do are very, very grateful to those Christians who have given their time to study apologetics and they have an answer for the people who are asking the question. If you needed heart surgery, you'd be glad that somebody specializes in that area. And likewise, if you need apologetics, you'll be very glad when there's somebody who specializes in apologetics. If you're a Christian who has a lot of doubts about your faith, and you're very unstable in your faith, you'll be glad to know that there are other Christians who have given their attention to the evidence, and they have considered the very things that uh, that you are asking yourself, the questions you're asking, the, the doubts that are plaguing your mind. Somebody else has given thought to those things, and and because of their efforts, now you have the evidence that you need to overcome the doubts that you are experiencing. The fact of the matter is some people need apologetics. Some Christians need apologetics to overcome doubts. Some unbelievers need apologetics in order to come to to believe that Christianity is true. So we need to have this tool in our tool belt, if you will. You know, it, it may not be used everywhere. Every 
construction workers have a lot of tools. And some of those tools get used a lot, and some of those tools rarely get used. Sometimes they're only used for very unique jobs. But I tell you what, if you're a construction worker, you're glad you have that tool in your toolbox so you can pull it out when you need it. You, in your own mission, your own uh, ministry, you may not have the need for apologetics as much as maybe some other Christian has the need for apologetics, but all of us will benefit from the study of apologetics. We'll benefit personally. Uh, it'll benefit us you know, for evangelism. So we have to be prepared for uh, whatever God has in store for us, whatever person he brings along our path. We need to be ready to give them an answer, to give them a reason for the hope that is in us. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.